children that are now downstairs, and uh, I'm glad that we can uh, we can do that. And, and uh, Julie and Inga will be back sometime, I think. So I'm glad. They did tell me a couple weeks out they aren't going to be here, which which is good. I at least had a little chance to prepare. Uh, Mark chapter 15 is where we're going this morning. In Mark chapter 15, we have been looking at the Gospel of Mark, and we have, in most recent weeks, been looking at the scenes around the cross. And last week, we, we looked at the crucifixion of Christ, and the centurion who believed, he seems to profess that anyways, where he says, truly this was the Son of God. And the scene shifts from the death of Christ on the cross to now, uh, a man which I think doesn't get enough attention in Scripture, Scripture doesn't talk a lot about him, but a man named Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, different Joseph than the one that uh, was the husband of Mary. Uh, there are several Josephs, obviously, but Joseph of Arimathea, and Joseph is the one that would have a tomb that he bought, and no one had ever been buried there, probably a tomb that he had reserved for himself, and he is the one that goes and finds the or begs for the body of Christ takes it, prepares it as much as he can in the, in the few moments left in the daylight, and uh, goes from there. We pick that up in Mark chapter 15, and we'll begin reading here in verse 42. Now when evening had come, because it was the day, uh, the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And then he brought or bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and the Mary of Mother, uh, the mother of uh, Joseph, uh, observed where he was laid. Our Father, again, we open up your word this morning. We ask that you would open it to our hearts and minds, that we would receive it with gladness. And Lord, that we would be able to appreciate uh, the death of Christ, and, and also, Lord, those that were around the cross on that day, that's... Uh, reach out in faith and, and testify of their faith in Christ. And so we ask now you'd open up your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We have here what you could title Joseph the, the secret disciple. We say secret because that's kind of the word that is used in the other gospel writers. They tell that up to this point, really, we don't see Joseph numbered at all among any of the, the immediate disciples of Christ, but he seems to be a follower of Jesus. And he is one that knew, actually, the scripture does tell us that he knew that the death of Christ, or in the, the, actually the consent of the death of Christ, was not something that he uh, believed was correct. Uh, and we'll look at that as we go down through it. But I think this, these few verses here from 42 to 47 of chapter 15 show us uh, that one individual can have an amazing difference. They really can in the not only in the whole course of affairs of things, but in the, the storyline as you go through it. We have here uh, the day of preparation, it says. The preparation day was coming. That's the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath, this day before Sabbath, and Sabbath would have been that Saturday, and all this was occurring on Friday. 
at evening of that Friday night, that's when Sabbath would start. And the Jews, being uh, keepers of the law, and they made sure that during the Sabbath time that there was no work to be done. And actually, under the law, you were not supposed to touch a dead body even on the Sabbath day. So it was a very big concern that these crucifixions were going on, and they were going on late into the day on that Friday. And remember last time we looked at this in the previous verses where we know that Jesus had died, okay? And because he was dead, and because to keep a body uh, hanging on the cross was a cursed thing, it was, uh, and by touching a dead body on the Sabbath day would have been worse, so they wanted to hastily get rid of the body to make sure that it was properly disposed of. And in the process of all that, this is going on, and the Jews were very much concerned about that. In John's Gospel, it actually says that, that the Jews were concerned about the bodies, and in particular, we're named here a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, as I said, there are a number of individuals throughout history probably that have made a difference in things. And the church history is filled with them. Uh, there's some that we know of, some that we don't. I often think of a man named uh, uh, Telemachus. And Telemachus lived uh, around, well, the year was 391 B.C. actually when he came to light. Most people would not have known him before that, not this Telemachus. Uh, but he journeyed from his little village where he kept a garden, and he was a Christian man, a man of uh, devout faith and a man of prayer, as what uh, history, tradition passes down about Telemachus. <coughs> and on and three, the year 391 BC, uh, A.D., I said B.C., I think I meant A.D., um, he went to the Roman Colosseum, at Rome, and the most one of the most famous landmarks of the world, and there in the Colosseum, of course, the Colosseum itself uh, had been built for entertainment and pretty much blood sport. And for actually uh, three centuries, at that point, there had been tens of thousands of people and animals and other things that had died there in the Colosseum uh, as nothing more than sport and entertainment that the Romans perfected. And Telemachus had been apparently to the Colosseum before. He went on one particular day and he went in there and he witnessed the gladiators coming out onto the floor of the Colosseum and getting ready to face off and to kill each other and to kill uh, uh, prisoners and slaves and others. And as they were getting ready to do that, he was greatly moved in his spirit by that and he he said, let it not be. And he ran down, as what tradition says, into the middle of the arena floor. And he said this, in the name of Christ, stop. Well, the gladiators, which this was their whole livelihood in many ways, and uh, they, they lived for this in many ways, died for this as well, sometimes by no choice of their own. But you know what? Uh, history says that one of them took a sword and cut him down at that point as he hollered out, and as he lay dying there, uh, bleeding out in the sand of the arena floor, he cried out again, in the name of Christ, stop this. And you know what's interesting is that slowly, actually, the, one of the gladiators put down his weapon, and the other one put down his weapon, and slowly the crowd began to leave the arena by the thousands, and they just walked out. And history tells us that was the last organized gladiator event in the Roman Colosseum that day. You wonder, can one man make a difference? 
<coughs> can somebody have an influence on an entire culture? I think in many ways, Joseph is one of these guys. He's probably like a Telemachus. He's underappreciated. And he's somebody that we don't often talk about. But he was there at the day that Christ died. He was there in Jerusalem. And he's a prominent figure in Jerusalem. And we read a little bit about him. There's some things we can piece together from Scripture about Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Number one, we know a little bit about his character. It says here that he was from a place called Arimathea. And Arimathea was about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem to the northwest. And it's there in Arimathea that we actually near the the city of Ramah. That's the place where the prophet Samuel was born and where he lived in Ramah up there. We know that from 1 Samuel chapter 1, of course. We know a little bit about Joseph of Arimathea. We, number one, we know that uh, we, where, he, where he came from, but we know that he was also a wealthy man. In Matthew chapter 27, it speaks about that. He, ha- he was the one that purchased the tomb. And he purchased a tomb, and there was a garden tomb, uh, right there in Jerusalem, and that was prime real estate if you were going to have uh, a tomb. It was an expensive, uh, most likely an expensive tomb and an expensive place to be buried, especially when his home was to the northwest by 20 miles. Most people would have been buried in their hometown during that time. We know that he was also a just man. In Luke chapter 23, verse 50, it says this, Now behold, there was a a man named Joseph, a, a council member, a good and just man. A good and just man. I like that. And I highlighted those words on purpose because that's the description from the Bible about the character of this man. We know somewhat about him that he he sat on a council and the council that is referred to there is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was that body that was the ruling body for the Jews made up of 70 individuals and they basically controlled everything that fell under the Jewish umbrella which included all the religious and civic duties. Uh, It did not have the authority to execute people because, remember, it was the Sanhedrin that had determined that Christ should be put to death. And it was the Sanhedrin that was consenting onto his death. As a unit, as a body, it was. But there were individuals among that group of 70 which did not, or who did not, consent to the death of Christ and particularly this one, Joseph, and there was another one also, Nicodemus, he's also on that, and both of them are mentioned in the gospel accounts. Nicodemus, of course, in John chapter 3, where he comes to Jesus by night, and he inquires of Jesus about the new birth, right? Uh, about being born again, well, that's what Jesus tells him. He says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we find Nicodemus, and we find Joseph of Arimathea, at the death of Christ, they are there trying to dispose of the body. And here in Mark's gospel, he mentions specifically just Joseph. But it's interesting because he says he's a good and a just man. And the Bible, and Bible words are very important, by the way. And the word good that is used there means someone who is of a ready and right mind. A ready and right mind. He was ready. When the time came and Jesus' body needed to be disposed of correctly, according to the customs and laws of the Jews, Joseph was ready. And he had a tomb that had already been purchased. I I think of that. Very few of us ever probably prepare that far ahead. 
uh, to say, especially in maybe our youth, and say, well, I'm going to buy a cemetery plot or I'm going to buy a tomb somewhere and have it all ready. I mean, it's kind of, we think, uh, that's, you know, bad luck or something if I do that, right? Now, sometimes as you get older, maybe you make those preparations or whatever, and there are people that do that. But the majority of people don't do that. But Joseph was ready, and number one, he was ready for his own death. And that's, that speaks of something, because he was a man that looked beyond this earth and realized that death would someday get him. And he was a man that had prepared that way by buying a tomb. And the assumption that he was preparing for death is that he was also preparing for eternity, away from this body, right? And we know that because it says he was a just man. And the word just there that is used means upright. And it's the testimony of God's word on this man's character that he was just. He was upright. He was justified. That word, by the way, as it's used in scripture, uh, is a reference to believers. You find it first used, probably, I think the first mention of it in the oldest book of the Bible is in the book of Job. And it says of Job that he was a just man and he shunned evil. That was his character, and that's the testimony of God about Job. Well, we come here and we read of this man. He also was good and he was just. It's also another word that, or another time that that is used of, uh, uh, of people. And we find Joseph, he's one of these um, that could be numbered with the faithful Jews who were waiting and watching for the kingdom of God. And they were waiting for a king. And you can piece it together from scripture that he knew who the king was and he knew that a terrible travesty of justice had occurred and he wasn't doing this out of guilt but he was doing this because he was ready for the next step in luke chapter 2 we read of a very similar uh, kind of people or couple that is mentioned here and you remember when jesus's mother and, and uh, joseph came another joseph right joseph of now Na- joseph of nazareth when they came to do as according to the law, uh, what we call the purification rites of Mary, they had to go to the temple and they brought the baby with them. He was just a baby at this point, some 33 years before the event of his death. And look what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So there's a a presentation of the baby to the Lord. That's a biblical thing, to present your children to the Lord. And it says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just. You see that? That word, same word that is used later on. And devout. And what made him just and devout is this. He was waiting, and he's waiting by faith, for the consolation of Israel. That's a a term or a title given to Messiah, to the king, to the anointed one. The consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Not by works of righteousness, whoops, excuse me, that's Titus. 
But he, and he said, and then he goes on. I'm not going to go to that passage. That's why. Uh, and he, he gives a blessing on this. And he says, my eyes have seen thy salvation, right? And he goes on. But I want to look at this man named, uh, named Simeon for a second and then kind of liken him. He's also called just and devout. In the very next section in Luke, you have a woman named Anna. She's a prophetess. By the way, Simeon and Anna were old people. They were very old. And in Simeon's case, God had revealed to him, you're not going to taste death until you actually see the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah. That's pretty special. But they were people of faith, and they were waiting by faith. And you come back there to uh, in Mark, and you find out that Joseph of Arimathea was also a man, and he was of the same kind of character. He was waiting and watching, and he was ready. And because of that, God called him just, and I'm thankful, uh, thankful for that in that respect of what he was called in that. He's called in uh, chapter 40, uh, 15 there of Mark in verse 43, it says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member. Now, the authorized version says honorable, and both are proper. It's an explanation of the word honored. He was a man who was sitting in a place of honor on the council. So he set out, and he was above, I mean, I, I, you know, kind of like a head and shoulders above the rest that were there. He, he stood out. He was prominent. And it's an important thing. The word in the Greek means in good standing and influential, respected. So that gives a further character of this man named Joseph of Arimathea. Not only does God call him good and just, but he's respectable among those that worked with him and sat with him. Uh, I think, by the way, that's the principle in Scripture. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's what the Bible says. And there were people that sat on that council, and from the very first moment that they had heard of Jesus of Nazareth, they set it in their hearts to make sure that he would not be their king, and he would not upset the, the apple cart, so to speak. And they determined in their heart that they wanted to see him die but not Joseph of Arimathea. He was different. And he had respect of those around him. And he waited for the kingdom of God. And that's what it says. <clears throat> Who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Sounds very similar to uh, Simeon, right? Sounds very similar to also uh, others that were waiting and they were watching and they were doing so by faith. These things had not taken place yet. And the Bible goes on to talk about him in that. I think we all can can be a little bit like Joseph. And the starting point, of course, is possessing genuine faith, genuine faith in Christ. Uh, It's important. Some would say, well, Joseph must have been saved because he did a good work. But, you know, I haven't talked about that work yet, have I? I've talked about things that were already determined about him before he went and got the body of Christ. He was a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a man who was just. He was a man who was good. He was a man who was respectable. All these different things were about him. But it was not, his, if he was a believer and saved, it was not because of his works of righteousness. Actually, Jesus called the Pharisees, and they, these were Pharisees that sat on the Sanhedrin, uh, or a lot of them anyways. And as they sat there, you know, remember Jesus didn't have a lot of good things to say about some of those guys because some of them were counting on their own works of righteousness and they weren't right the bible declares those things as filthy rags in the book of isaiah 
And in the book of uh, Titus, in the New Testament there, chapter 3, or yeah, chapter 3, verse 5, says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We know a little bit about this man. He was just. He was just not because of his works of righteousness. Okay, And I'm using Titus to comment on this. But because of the mercy of Christ. Because of the grace of God that is given to us. And it's really through the washing, the regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's at the time that we turn from our sin and we trust the Lord. You know, one of the ministries of God is that he washes us new by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God involved in that as well. And renews us, begins that process of renewal. Jesus likens it in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. He says, uh, being born from above, being born again, literally, is the word born from above that is used there. And that has to take place to be saved. That has to take place to have our sins removed. And our sins are not removed by our own works. They can't be. You can do all kinds of good things, but those, you know, those works will not save you from anything. <clears throat> In John chapter 6, verse 44, and by the way, salvation begins with the Lord, just so you know that. It doesn't begin with man. It doesn't begin with Joseph of Arimathea getting up one day and saying, I'm going to become justified by myself and do it. It, became with, it came about as part of God's plan. You see, when man went into sin back there in the garden, and I think of that because uh, God has his eye on gardens for some reason, doesn't he? Back there in Genesis chapter 3, we see a garden, and it was a perfect garden. There was no sin, there was no death, there was no pain, there was no suffering, anything like that in that garden until Satan comes along and we have Adam and Eve deceived. They buy into the lie that they can be like God, and they fall into sin by their own choice, but they go into sin and the curse of sin is then passed upon all of us. And you know what? Man would have stayed in that very condition, apart from God, cursed to die, being driven out of the garden. And that's what you have, driven out. God drives him out. And you know what? That would have been the very condition that man would have been in for generation after generation after generation, dying and going off into hell, except that God had a plan. And the plan initiated with the Lord himself, even before he created anything even before the fall jesus is called the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth did you know that part of god's plan was that he had redemption extended and that buying back of man making him just making him justified all that and he had that plan way back from uh, eternity past in john chapter 6 verse 44 jesus says this no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him And I will raise him up at the last day. And there Jesus says, you know, God the Father is now drawing us. If you're an unbeliever, he has a ministry to the unbeliever. It's to draw the sinner to Christ. The Holy Spirit does that as well. It's the Spirit of God that draws and illuminates and brings people to Christ. And that's why, really, Christ is the focal point, isn't he? He's the one who's the Savior. And that goes on. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, now think of this because Joseph of Arimathea was a Hebrew and uh, Simeon was a Hebrew. And you go right back down through and you know the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews. All right. And in verse 3 of chapter 2, there's a tremendous verse here. And I, I want to speak on this a little bit. 
The question goes out, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? The first part of that says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see, God offers salvation to us from our sins. And he not only takes us and forgives us of our sins, and, but he renews us. And he gives us a place that is ascended into the heaven. And he seats, he's seated there himself today. And he guarantees us a place in heaven. We get so much in salvation it's not just the forgiveness of sins, but it's everything that is Christ as well. That's part of that. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, puts it here, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know what that tells me? Number one, that you can neglect it. That if the message comes to you, and that's what it says, it came spoken by the Lord himself, and it was confirmed by those that actually heard him right there, firsthand witnesses, But there were some that were in danger of neglecting that great salvation. And how do you neglect something? Well, you neglect it by ignoring it. Saying, well, that's not really important. Let me tell you, it's ever important. You can neglect it by being disobedient. When that message comes to you and you say, yeah, I know that's the way to get saved, but I'm not ready to do that. I don't want to do that. Well, you know what? You're neglecting that great message of salvation. And by the way, uh, the Bible says that call upon him while it is day, you know? And that's what we are to do. Tomorrow never gets here. Tomorrow is always in the future. Today is the day of salvation. That's what the Bible declares. And you know what? Don't neglect it. Later on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 9, it says this of Christ, and having been perfected, completed, that's his, that's his work on the cross. We talked about that last week. When he died on the cross and he said, It is finished! The death of Christ perfected a way to pay for the sins of the world. And he himself dying a perfect death once for all. It says this, he became the author of eternal salvation. And then there's a last phrase, to all who obey him. The obedience that is talked about there is the obedience of the gospel message. When the gospel, which is the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, when it comes to you, you have a choice to obey it or disobey it to uh, accept it or neglect it. And the book of Hebrews is clear on that. I really I see that very clearly on that. You know what? Don't do that. Don't neglect it. Accept Christ. He's the author and the only author of eternal salvation. And he's the only way of salvation in that. Joseph of Arimathea got it. He was one of those Hebrews that understood these things. We know that because he's a just man. And he did. He understood those things in that. I think it's important that we too, uh, when we come to that, we understand what the Lord is doing. Well, we see that's his character. Uh, But we also see a little bit about uh, who he was. And then again, this is uh, Luke 23, verse 51. And just adding this to the character information. It says, he had not consented to their decision and their deed. So, Joseph of Arimathea clearly did not want to see Christ put to death. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. And so that's Luke's take on it. And he adds that extra little detail, right, that Mark doesn't include in those things. We learn a little bit more about him, and we understand that as a Jewish leader, up to this point, he's sort of been hiding in plain sight. We don't see him out there, as I said, numbered with the other disciples, 
Uh, obviously, he had heard about Christ. Obviously, he knew the word of God as a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a religious leader. He would have known the Bible, the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the law, the prophets, all that he would have known. And he would have known much of it right verbatim by heart. And it was mingled with faith. And that's the difference. You can know a whole bunch of stuff, but until you mingle it with faith and trust the Lord, you know what? Uh, you, you don't believe. You don't trust. And that's what faith is all about. Well, Joseph was like that. But up to this point, he kind of hides it. And I, I thought of that because if you're truly a believer in Christ and you've you been brought into that relationship with him, it's hard to hide that. And he will give you extra boldness and courage sometimes to speak out when no one else is. Obviously, this man had not consented to the decision and the deed of the Sanhedrin. When they took a vote and most of the Sanhedrin put up their hand or however they indicated how they wanted to proceed on the death of Christ and the execution of Christ and his charge to make it stick, Joseph did not do that. He was one of the few that didn't, probably Nicodemus being another one. And we don't know, we weren't there, but there was at least those two that knew that this Jesus was indeed uh, the one who was the promised one to come. Well, there are those things about him, but you have to trust the Lord, don't you? Uh, Psalm 107, verse 2. This would have been a psalm that Joseph of Arimathea would have sung at one time. And you know what it says there? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I like that. We said, uh, the kids sang the the chorus there, shout to the Lord. That's from the Psalms also. Did you know that? And you know, when you're part of the multitude of the redeemed, you're part of that number, you can't be silent. And if you try to be silent, he's destined to strip that away from us and make us talk. And he does that. Whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Oh, I like that. How about Psalm 47, verse 1? Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. And here's Joseph. The Bible says in Mark's gospel there, and also in the other gospel writers, that he took courage and that he went to Pilate, right? Because Pilate was the one who was actual, the civil authority under Rome that determined what they would do with the body. And I'm sure Pilate was very glad to get rid of the body of this Jesus. He had caused a lot of trouble in that day. And he just wanted to get rid of him. But you know what? Joseph went before the very high authority uh, of the civil government of Rome. And I'm sure he did so with fear and trembling. Because Pilate could have done all kinds of things. He could have said, hey, you're awful brash to come ask me that and i'm going to put you in prison you know or i'm going to make sure that you're removed from the sanhedrin the actual romans had the power to do some of that all of that could have happened but he took courage because god gave him the courage and he went there and he pled on behalf of doing that which is right which was taking care of the body of jesus i think that's extremely important isn't it The Bible says of, of Joseph in John's Gospel, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 19, verse 38, says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, uh, he adds that part, for fear of the Jews. So up to this point, Joseph was fearful. We're in good company, aren't we? <laughs> I get fearful. Uh, there's days that I, sometimes I, I hope that when I'm walking somewhere, you know, people don't, recognize me or something like that i'm afraid you know maybe they'll ask me about something and where do those fears come from they come from our own heart sometimes 
Listen, if you're walking with the Lord and for the Lord, you don't need to fear. It says, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and he took the body. He took the body. And look what it says in verse 39 of, uh, of that section. It says, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. You know, I, I find here interesting because you have Joseph and his heart has been moved. But you also have Nicodemus over here and his heart has been moved too. And maybe one spurred the other on. We don't know. Maybe one talked, you know, being on the Sanhedrin, they would have talked with each other. They would have shared their thoughts on things. And I wonder if Nicodemus, that one who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, probably came at night because he also was afraid. He was afraid of the Jews, his own people. And he comes to Jesus, dialoguing with Jesus there in the middle of the night. And there Jesus tells him exactly that you need to trust you know, God by faith, right? That's basically what he says when he says, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that great verse later on in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, that's faith, that's trust, right? Shall not perish but have everlasting life. I love that. That is something that is the promise of God. Nicodemus knew that. So did Joseph. And they both end up coming and being involved in the preparation of the body of Christ to be disposed of in the tomb. I don't think they fully understood what was going to happen. That Friday when the body of Christ was being put down there in the, in the tomb and the stone would be rolled away, it wouldn't be there very long because on that early Sunday morning before the sun rises, Jesus would be raised up. And he wouldn't be in that tomb very long. Well, we find that here these two are mentioned. And I thought about that because, you know, God is at work in more than one person at one time. I love that. And I've seen it over and over again. Just about the time I think he's working in my heart and my life, I realize he's working in my wife's heart and her life. And sometimes he brings you together in the same decisions and he's the one that's done it, right? Or he's done it with, you know, someone else around you and you realize God's doing this. He's at work because he's God. I got to move on here on this, but uh, go back to Mark's gospel here. And I find it interesting because you have Joseph. He takes courage. And we read of that, of course, verses 43, um, where it talks about that courage there in verse 46. And I think, see, if, if the Jews had just left the body there on the cross, the Romans would have just disposed of the body like they did so many other bodies. They would have just taken it outside the city somewhere, thrown it in a trench with probably some other rotting and decaying bodies in a dump, more or less, and then they would have just thrown some stones over it or let the dogs come and rip them apart, those kind of things. That, that's what they did. And as archaeologists have come along and dug up around the Holy Land, all that, they've, through the various times where Jews suffered, uh, they found that. Sometimes just mass graves. And the world has lots of those kind of mass graves. And you know what? This man wanted to see that the body was respected and that it was properly buried according to the law, according to the customs that were there. And I think that speaks to this man's heart that he wanted to do that. Well, he comes and he talks to Pilate and 
he goes and goes up boldly, and that's what the word to take courage means, that he mustered that boldness, and it was a holy boldness. Sometimes we need that, don't we? That you say, where did I get that courage to say that or to do that? You did it because God was with you, and he does that. And as I said, he influenced a man named Nicodemus, or maybe Nicodemus influenced him. We don't know for sure, but we do know that uh, these guys were, were instrumental in that as well. And I, I want to look at this last verse here, because it says in verse 47, And Mary Magdalene, the mother, or Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. And the word observe there, it means that, uh, to look upon. In the authorized version, it says beheld, and it's the same you know, synonym, right? <clears throat> but the Greek word is an interesting word. It, it means, it's uh, theoreo, and it means to perceive, and it's not just looking with your eyes, but it's thinking about, all right? Interesting word there, the root of that, right? To theorize, you know, we could say the same thing. To observe, to look to behold, to consider. All those are ways that it's translated in the Bible, that same word that is used there for behold. And and I think about that because these women who were there also were watching. There were others that were watching as well. But they watched as they took the linen and they took the body of Christ, they wrapped it in the linen. Nicodemus brought spices and apparently... They didn't have much opportunity to prepare the body because um, on Sunday morning when those same women go back, they brought spices with them to prepare the body, the Bible says. So they were doing this in haste, but yet they were still trying to do it in the right way. And they wrap carefully that body, and then they go and they lay it in the tomb, and these women watch. But they watch not only by just seeing it as a fact, but they think about it. They think about it. Maybe they were thinking about what Jesus promised. Remember Jesus said in John's gospel, he says this, that destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he was referring to the temple of his own body. And the Bible itself declares that he would be raised up. uh, And the third day he would do that. He would not see corruption. That tomb would not be a permanent dwelling place for the body. And of course that Sunday morning would make all the difference. And those women, I think they also, as they pondered these things, they looked on those things, they beheld them, and they they thought about it. You know, if we go away from here this morning with anything, I hope that you go away with the confrontation in your mind and your heart today of thinking about this, about Jesus. Is this just some factual figure in history, maybe, or some myth that somebody made up, or is this real? Did Jesus really die? Was his body really put in a tomb? Was he really raised again? Hey, the Bible declares this, and you know what? The evidence is overwhelming that yes, he did. And men like Joseph of Arimathea and the women that are mentioned here and others, they were the ones that followed him, and they were obedient to the gospel message. We need to be obedient as well. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for the word of God, and I'm reminded Today, just out of these few verses we looked at, of the very fact that your eye is on every individual. You know our hearts. You're the one that can ultimately make that declaration of righteousness as we, by faith, repent and turn to you. And Lord, I thank you that that opportunity extends to us today, these so many years later, after Joseph and after these women that are mentioned and others that followed you. 
Thank you for that invitation. And I pray again that if there's anybody here today that's a stranger to you, that even before we leave this place, they would cast themselves before you and their hearts bowed before you as well, Lord, just acknowledging you as a Savior, the one who forgives sin, and they would trust you as their Lord. Lord, we thank you for that great hope and promise. In Jesus' name, amen.